If you have a Bible with you, uh, open to the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 2, or you can follow along the bulletin where the same text is printed there. Uh, we've been going through a study of the Gospel of Mark, and uh, really starts right into Jesus' public life and ministry, and um, amazing things have been happening as he uh, sort of pulls back the curtain on who he is. Uh, people are getting healed, and... Uh, relief from demonization and people are finding mercy that aren't used to finding mercy or expecting it and it's already becoming a little controversial and it's surprising what's controversial it's like people getting healed bothers people like um, the religious people in particular like are you sure you're supposed to be doing that you know not you would think amazed that like a paralytic is healed who was paralyzed, you know, not like one of the show healings, but this is real. And all they could do is think, this rankles with me, this irritates me, it bothers me. I'm not sure he's supposed to be doing that. I don't like the direction this is going. If this is really supposed to be the Messiah, it bothers me. And it's funny that mercy would bother people. I was told this in seminary, some of you probably do, that... Um, that, you know, sometimes you get in trouble for what you say as a preacher. And I was told, what's going to get you in trouble is not when you take some hard stand on some big uh, public moral issue. People probably just like that. So the thing that's going to get you in trouble is when you start talking with seriousness about God's mercy. And I thought, that's not right. You know, that's not true. But it sure was true in Jesus' life. And um, I don't know if you're going to be mad at me after this, but... Working on this all week, I've been a little bit mad. <laughs> so it's like, it's God's mercy that provokes me too. I was, usually I think about somebody in particular in the congregation when I'm doing a sermon. You know, it's usually William or J.D. But <laughs> Today I was thinking, who, who am I going to think about in this sermon? And I think, oh, it's me. <laughs> this sermon's about me. Um, because in this passage, it's the, it's the calling of Levi, who we know as St. Matthew, um, and he's not like a victim of the curse on the world that you feel sorry for. He's a deliberately bad person. And Jesus is merciful to him. And that irritates the religious people and me. And that's what we're going to think about today. So let me pray for us and uh, then we'll read the scripture. Father, please come and help us. Um, the people who are provoked by what Jesus said in this passage are better people than us for the most part and uh, not unlike us. So we ask that you'd be merciful to us like you were merciful to Levi. Uh, let us hear your word and let us know and love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning at verse 13 of Mark chapter 2. It says, He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I mean, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast in that day. But no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine's destroyed, so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, you remember uh, Bishop Muriel from Les Mis? He was the uh, bishop who forgave Jean Valjean early in the story and gave him the gold candles, the silver candlesticks that Valjean had stolen. I saw somebody um, on the internet this week who had had a tattoo put on his forearm of the two candlesticks because he loved the story so much. And he said, once I looked at the tattoo when it was done, it looked like two hypodermic needles. And it looked like I was a junkie. <laughs> it really did look like that. But I appreciated the idea that he would uh, have the picture of the candlesticks there. Uh, Bishop Muriel is a funny character because uh, Victor Hugo, who wrote the story, was not a Christian and was pretty antagonistic towards the church. And um, his son was mad at him after he read his book. He said, why did you make the priest the good, the good guy? Why did you make him the picture of mercy and embrace to those who are broken? Uh, why couldn't you have used like someone from a more modern liberal profession like a doctor or something like that? Why would you, you have to use a priest for that? And uh, Hugo wrote him back and said this. He said, I can't put the future in the past, and my novel takes place in 1815. But for the rest, this Catholic priest... This true and lofty picture of the true priesthood offers the most savage satire on the priesthood today. So the beauty of Bishop Muriel's grace was meant as a savage satire on the church because in Hugo's experience, the church is the last person, is the last place on earth someone would go and expect to be welcomed and embraced no matter what their past or history was. And he thought this beautiful example of mercy uh, from a priest would be a stinging satire for the church. And that's a, probably not an uncommon sentiment even today. Right? That people don't expect the church to be the place where someone would be welcomed and embraced uh, no matter where they come from, no matter what their past is. Our public reputation is similar to what it was in Hugo's day. Uh, people think of us as being judgmental and censorious and scolding, right? Looking down our noses, uh, worried that we would be dirtied and contaminated by contact with people who are, you know, sinners or who are broken and messier than us anyway. Um, the story we have with Jesus and Levi is a little different, though, even from Bishop Muriel's story, because Valjean in Les Miserables is... Uh, I don't know if that's not how you pronounce it. In Les Mis, uh, Valjean is a sympathetic character. 
I mean, he's a little bit of a perpetrator, stealing some bread when his family was starving, but he's mostly a sympathetic person. And for him to receive mercy uh, makes us happy. You know, we're touched by this. We're happy that the bishop doesn't press charges against him for stealing the silver. Uh, Levi is not a sympathetic character. Levi is a deliberately bad person. Um, nobody has a soft heart for him and thinks that deep down he's really a good guy. Um, he's indefensible, really, because he's, he's a thief and he's a traitor. A tax collector. Even, you know, even in translation over a couple of centuries, tax collector still has a negative connotation. Uh, but it was especially bad in Israel. You, you bought a franchise to be a tax collector, basically. And Rome said, we expect you to, to send us this much money every tax period, and whatever else above that you can gather, you can have. And so you got two things going on. He's dishonest, so he's taking more than he should. He's gouging people for tax. And he's also a scallywag. I mean, he's a, he's a collaborator with the Romans against his own people. So like, you're, you're working with them to steal from us. You're the worst. Right? You're just the worst sort of person. We don't have any sympathy for you. We don't see anything redeemable or good in you. I mean, he's a person who's basically said the one non-negotiable in my life, the sine qua non of everything in my life is money. Um, i got to make my way in this world, and the one thing that I'm going to not do without is money. There may be fallout for me taking this job. I may pay social costs for it, but I'm not doing without money. I can't. I've got to have that. And because of that, he's willing to do this job as a tax collector and invite all the scorn that comes from that, everybody looking at, down on him and hating him and not sending their kids to play at his house and things. Um, you know, he's, and he's not like deep down a good guy, misunderstood, and if you just saw the sweet, gentle heart that he has, you'd think differently of Levi. No, that's not it. He's doing this on purpose. He's not a good guy. He's just not. I was trying to think of an example. Like who, who would correlate to him in our culture, and the best I could do, and it wasn't that good, was like a title loan officer who, uh, through usury, exploits the poor. And but then I thought, no, but the title loan officer is not that bad because the title loan officer might well be patriotic. <laughs> he may not be traitorous to his own people. And also, the title loan officer only exploits poor people, not me. <laughs> and so... He's a more forgivable character, right? The tax collector exploited everybody. There's a good chance that Jesus paid his taxes at Levi's tax booth. They lived in the same town. But he's the guy you look at and you say, how does this guy live with himself? How does he sleep at night? You know, you wag your head about somebody like this and you just think, ah, you know, people are the worst. And Jesus calls him. It was really weird because you don't get any background story. Like You kind of get the idea that James and John and Peter, that they had been following some and known him before he called them to leave their jobs of fishing to come be his disciples. And There's no background story and there's no appeal with Matthew. He just walks up and says, follow me. And Matthew, of all people, does. It's like, Here, here's a blank contract, sign it. And he goes, okay, <laughs> signs it. He's in. 
Um, it's bizarre, shocking to everybody. It's probably shocking to Levi himself that this is happening in his life. But uh, he's ready, and he signs it. He says yes, and he gets up and leaves his table and follows him. And he does what he knew to do, which is throw a party for Jesus. Right? And uh, so he throws a party, invites Jesus, and Jesus and his other disciples come to the party. Who goes to uh, Who goes to Matthew's party? You figure, um, like people whose reputations probably won't be damaged by going to Matthew's party. So, like other tax collectors, maybe uh, other social pariahs and outcasts. It's not a good crowd. You figure going to Matthew's party, nobody's going to his house. Nobody wants to be seen going to his house. Um, and Jesus goes and takes his disciples. And he's clearly not supposed to be doing this, right? I mean, this is not what a rabbi does. This is not what a rabbi should do. Um, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But he goes, takes his disciples. I mean, surely somebody had told Jesus somewhere along the way that you have to do everything that you can in life to avoid the appearance of evil. Surely somebody told him that, right? But he doesn't seem to be worried about his reputation. Uh, or the appearance of evil. Um, in some ways, this reputation, going to Matthew's party, really follows him, good and bad. He gets called and accused of later in his ministry of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. And he was a friend of sinners. <laughs> he wasn't a glutton or a drunkard, but he was open to the charge. Right? It didn't seem preposterous for them to say that he was because he goes to Matthew's party. I mean, what kind of, what's going to happen at this party, do you figure? You think, people might use bad language at this party. Right? Um, they'll probably be drinking. We don't know this, but they might have danced. Right? <laughs> and, uh, but he goes. He goes to this kind of party. He's not worried about being contaminated by Matthew and his friends. But he's Jesus, right? He wouldn't take his disciples to a party like this, especially these young disciples who are brand new in the faith and don't know much at all yet. No, he takes them, right? They go with him too, to this party. So, this isn't how you're supposed to do it. He's doing it wrong, we know. Um, he's going to cause his Christian brothers to stumble if you're uh, nearer to the faith, uh, you may not know about this, but there's instruction in the New Testament that says um, you're free to do a lot of things, but some of them you might not want to do because you may uh, unnecessarily trouble new Christians who aren't as coached up as you are, right? And you might confuse them, and they might be tempted to uh, sin and violate their conscience or something in a way that they wouldn't have been otherwise except they saw you doing something. This is how little Baptist children in Georgia are taught never to drink. And, uh, but concern for a weaker brother who might sin because of what you do um, doesn't really fit the category of what's going on here. The Pharisees who were mad because he was going to this party weren't like all of a sudden tempted to go to parties like that now. <laughs> like they were never going to go to those parties and they didn't want to any. Right? Uh, Joseph Aldrich wrote a book several years ago, many years ago, 
put an idea into my head. He had a term, a term and category he used about some believers. He called them professional weaker brothers. Like people who are perpetually the weaker brother, who really aren't weak, who really aren't uh, in danger of being tempted into sin by seeing you do something, uh, but who are just constantly scandalized by everything and offended. And he points out that Jesus did not bend over backwards at all to accommodate the professional weaker brothers. Um, he wasn't worried about them any. And so, if nothing else, the upshot of what you see here, uh, as you get your mind around who Jesus is and what he's doing, is um, we're supposed to be friends with sinners too. Right? And that may be obvious to you, but for a church kid like me, it's not that obvious that we're not just supposed to have our circle of friends restricted to people who um, already agree with us about religion. And um, church would be way healthier if that simple truth permeated our little thick skulls. If you have a house, who's in it? Who comes over? Is it just other Christians? Um, who do you socialize with? If you get invited to parties... You're supposed to go, right? There may be a party here and there somewhere in your life that's a little too wild and you really don't need to go, okay. But the bigger problem for the church is our skittishness, our sense that somehow we'll be damaged or contaminated uh, by being friends with sinners. And there's no room for that in Jesus and his, with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, we're supposed to be friends with sinners. So, um, church people don't, didn't like this then, generally don't like this now. Um, the Pharisees, who are the best religious people at the time, they grumbled about this. They did it like typical bullies. It doesn't say they, they grumbled to Jesus. It says they grumbled to his disciples. You know, they're like, I don't know. I've never been to a party like this. I'm, I'm uncomfortable as it is. I don't know the answer to your questions. But Jesus overheard it, and he answered their questions. Now, these Pharisees, again, don't, we're used to thinking of Pharisees as bad people. Nobody thought of Pharisees as bad people then. Uh, they were people with white hats. They were the keepers of the orthodox flame of the Jewish religion. They were the ones who said, we will not compromise and sell out to the culture. We're going to be pure. We're going to be devoted to God, to his law, and we're serious about it. And they were. And um, now, if they were, if they were around today, um, good chance they'd be going to church with us, right? They'd be a little worried that we're not pure enough, but at least we're trying to be the, you know, the stalwarts who haven't bowed the knee to Baal and, you know, are trying to, to be the good guys, and um, that's who they were. And this bothered them. They were always irritated by Jesus. It's very distressing to me that this is the case. The people who, whom Jesus irritated were people like me. And inevitably, whatever he did, they found it provocative. They didn't like it. He's doing things wrong. I mean, the Messiah comes. Who's he supposed to eat with? He's supposed to eat with me, right? With me. And over dinner, we're going to talk about those people out there who are ruining the church and ruining our culture. And we're going to wag our heads at them. And that's how it's supposed to be. And that's not what he's doing. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, even the fasting question that comes up, 
the Messiah is going to come and he's going to not fast and his disciples aren't going to fast? No, no. If the Messiah comes, he's going to be like the super faster. <laughs> he's going to fast even more than we do. We do it twice a week. He'll probably do four times a week. He's going to raise the bar and he's certainly going to congratulate us for the strong efforts we've been making. And they're not fasting at all. Even John's disciples, they like John and even his disciples don't fast. Why is he, what's wrong with him? Why is he doing this wrong? It's not how it's supposed to be. And they felt that um, in their bones, not just, not just as opinions. You know how you get a bad feeling about somebody sometimes and you think they're just not right? Well, that's how they look at Jesus. It's like, ah, he just hits every wrong note with me. And it's not the way it should be. And so Jesus deals with them. He, he deals with them a lot in the, in the four Gospels in the New Testament. But here he addresses them and he kind of gives them three answers for the things that are irritating them. And I'm not going to take them in order. But first thing he says is an example that's supposed to just clear everything up. So you're supposed to say, oh, now I get it. He says uh, in verse 21, you don't sew a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or the patch will tear away from it. And you don't put new wine into an old wine skin. Does that clear it up for you? <laughs> okay. I, I, I get like if you patch clothes and then you wash them and they draw up and the, yeah, the patch will tear away. I get that. I don't... Why are you putting your wine in a skin? I don't know. The, uh, but apparently, new wine, as it uh, ferments, expands and stretches a wine skin. So if you put new wine into an already expanded old wine skin, it'll break it. Okay, so now do you understand? <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, I'm trying to follow you. Is he saying like the Old Testament was the old wine skin and that's bad and the New Testament now after Jesus has come is good? He's clearly not saying that. Um, big reason we all uh, believe the Old Testament so assiduously is because Jesus did. You know, he talks about it. This is God's word. And so he loves the Old Testament. The old wineskins are the normal way that normal people look at life and God. The normal way that normal people look at life and God. Um, that is, God likes good little boys and girls. We're, for the most part, good little boys and girls. God, therefore, likes us and will reward us. Um, responsible people live in God's favor. People who do what they're supposed to do live in God's favor. People who are screw-ups and don't do what they're supposed to do have issues with God that need to be dealt with. Um, but we know how the world goes around. You know, if you're responsible and you work hard and you do what you're supposed to do, you thrive and prosper and your family thrives and prospers. And that's normal. Everybody knows that. Any normal common sense person knows that. Except Jesus, who doesn't know that. Um, and he says, look, what I'm talking about here, you should have been able to see in the Old Testament, but you didn't very well, is the idea that God deals with people completely by his grace, and it's completely undeserved. And you don't have a thing that you earned. You only have gifts in your life. And that is such a crazy way to look at life. Nobody thinks that way about life. But if you, if you try to fit the idea of Jesus and His grace into your normal, normal person's way of looking at the world and thinking about it, it will rip it apart. Right? If you try to say, yes, it's important to be a responsible good citizen and do what I'm supposed to do and do my duty and not let my kids play with little bad crowd kids 
and you know, keep myself separate from what's bad and do what good little boys and girls are supposed to do. And then I hear about Jesus' mercy, and I think, that's great for people who need it, and I might even need a little bit sometimes myself. He says, if you try to import me into your life that way, it will rip you apart because it's so different. It's so different. My, the new wine is the way of Jesus' mercy and grace. And it's radically different from any, the way any normal person thinks. And he's saying, the Pharisees are like, I can't fit anything that he's doing or saying into my way of looking at the world. And my way of looking at the world is good, and it works. And, and my children, for the most part, are responsible kids because we raised them the right way and we made them obey. And they at least hide their sins and don't embarrass me. right? And like this is the way it's supposed to be. And he's saying that our whole... It's not just like we have one or two wrong opinions about religion or something. He's saying our whole way of looking at the world is skewed and doesn't please the Lord. And that cannot be. Right? That cannot be. And so they, they just were driven crazy by him. Everybody likes old wine better. Like Jesus knows that. Everybody likes old wine better. Unless you're like a paralytic or you're demonized or you're a scallywag thief and traitor like Levi. And then that new wine where everything is mercy for people who don't deserve it, that tastes pretty good now. But if you got your act together, if you're a, decent, if you're a good person deep down and you're a responsible citizen, a good student, you know, you know, write syllabus assignments down on your calendar the first day of class, you know, those kind of things, you're going to like the old wine a lot better. You are this new wine tastes uh, vinegary if you've got your life together. But if you don't have your life together, the new wine tastes good. Right. So, then he gives this other example that I do understand. He says, uh, only sick people need a doctor. And I get that. But I don't get, though, is the obvious implication of what he's saying is uh, you don't think you're sick. Why are you eating with tax gatherers and sinners? Ooh. And he say only sick people need a doctor. And you know they say, yeah, oh, wait a minute. That had a sting in it. He means I don't think I'm sick, but he thinks I'm sick. <laughs> he thinks I need a doctor. I don't think I need a doctor. And if you give me time to think about it, I realize what he's saying is that those tax collectors, the traitors, the thieves, are like me. That I'm like them morally. Like we're moral correlates. How dare anyone say or think that? That's, a, that's preposterous. Anybody knows that's wrong. I'm a good, responsible, upright citizen. I sit around my house and talk about what everybody else is doing to ruin my country and my church. And I point the fingers and I say, something needs to be done about them. And Jesus comes and he says, you are what's wrong with your country and the church and something needs to be done about you. And I'm not taking that. I don't have to take that. Who thinks they can say that to me? That's how the Pharisees felt. That's how I feel when I hear it too. And he said... I'm not saying you're exactly identical to the tax collectors, the thieves and traitors. 
you're not identical to them because they know they're sick and you don't even know you're sick. So they're really better off than you are. And that stings. It's meant to sting. At least they know they're sick and need a doctor. But Jesus was vexing to people who are content with their own righteousness. I'm a good person. I have a good heart. Deep down, I'm kind. Ask anyone. I'm generous. I'm responsible. I'm a good person. I know people who are bad people. I'm not one of those people. I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm only human. But my sins, such as they are, are excusable sins. Not like Levi. He's inexcusable. My sins are... I get impatient sometimes when people are vexing with me. That's, that's excusable, right? I'm a good person. My old wineskins work fine. And Jesus says, you're blind to yourself. You're sick and you don't even know that you're sick. He says you're, you're as judgmental as the day is long. You're like a freaking hall monitor that's going around taking names all day about what everybody's doing wrong. I'm telling you. know, I'll write that down, what you did. You know, I've got a condemning spirit where I'm ready just to blister and obliterate people, at least mentally, when I see them and think that they're doing things that are wrong. I'm envious. Um, in church, I'm very aware of my ranking spiritually. And if someone says something disparaging to me, I take great offense. Right? Um, I know who I'm supposed to be. And I keep a tennis ladder in my head, you know, kind of spirituality and where I fit on it. And I'm moving up, not down. Self-justifying. I read the opinions of my political opponents and I think, are they evil or are they just stupid? And I justify myself for having these beautiful opinions. And religiously, it's even worse. Somebody has bad doctrine, uh, they're probably stupid and evil. Um, and I run this soundtrack in my head all the time. And I'm cold and unmerciful and proud. And Jesus says, do you think God likes that? <laughs> do you think you're not sick? Do you think those aren't massive problems between you and God? Because they are. Those are not excusable sins. Those are devastating sins. And they, they mean that just because your sins aren't as licentious as Levi's, you're still just like him, maybe worse. But that's a hard pill to swallow. Here's an example to show you how it gets me in trouble, how I think about it. Uh, some of you know in one of Paul's letters, the, the letter to the Romans, he has kind of a famous chapter, uh, chapter one of that book, the last half of it. He sort of describes the plight of human beings everywhere as we turn away from God and sort of spiral down morally because of it. And one of the things that he famously mentions in that passage is same-sex attraction. And he says, you know, this is a moral problem and uh, has its roots in uh, the uh, turning our backs on God on some level. And so you hear a lot of churches talk about how bad same-sex attraction and homosexual actions are. And you hear a lot of finger pointing about that culturally. It gets a lot of press. It goes on the Internet a lot. But that chapter that seems to describe a spiral downward morally gets down below the sexual sins to other sins, like covetousness, strife, 
gossip, boastfulness, heartlessness, and ruthlessness. Have you ever read an internet post about the culture's heartlessness towards broken people? <laughs> that might as well not be in it. Covetousness and strife and gossip and boastfulness and heartlessness and ruthlessness are excusable sins that good people commit. Not like those bad people committing the bad sins. And because that seems like a normal way to think, that's an old wineskin way to think, we don't think we're sick and we don't think we need a Savior like Jesus. So, you know, the new wineskins, everything's grace. Everything you have from God is a gift of His mercy. Uh, all the favor that you stand in comes because Jesus has lived and died for you, not because of anything in you. So He gives a third answer to them. I'll, I'll finish soon. He says, uh, they, when they ask about fasting, how come your disciples don't fast? Everybody fasts. All the good people fast, right? John's disciples even do. And he doesn't give them the answer that I would have given them. So, well, actually, when you study the Old Testament, you'll see that fasting is required really just once a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, other than that, it's appropriate but optional. So you're really misunderstanding the need for fasting. It's appropriate but optional. Really just once a year is required. And that's true. But that's not what he said. Because what he seemed to be saying was, your problem isn't just that you've got a little bit wrong in your uh, description ethically of what fasting is. Your dictionary definition of fasting isn't actually precisely correct. He said your whole way of looking at God and the world is weird and skewed, and it has to change. So when they ask him about fasting, he starts talking about what? A wedding. He starts talking about a wedding. What? Did you understand the question? <laughs> but he says, no, the groom is here, and the party has started. The groom is here, the party has started. They might fast later, maybe during Lent, like some Christians do, but the groom's here. So let me ask you this. When you picture the most pious person that you can imagine uh, living a life close to God in the world. What's your picture? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. Well, she's dead now, so the bar is lower. Um, but, yeah, maybe a monk, right? Maybe a monk uh, uh, in the late hours of the night uh, crying over his prayers. Mother Teresa amongst the uh, outcasts Maybe a grandmother looking through thick glasses to read the well-worn pages of her Bible and pray for her grandchildren every evening. Did your picture of someone living a deeply devout and pious life ever look like somebody with a tux jacket thrown over his shoulder with his bow tie loosened with a glass of wine newly empty again and a plate laden high with food from the buffet, cracking up laughing at a story the groom is telling at a party? Would that ever be your picture of a deeply pious, godly life? What Jesus is saying here to these people is, unless that can be your picture of what a deeply pious life looks like, um, 
you're gonna just keep your old wineskins and you're never gonna come with me. You're never gonna come with me. Um, because the other, the old wineskins can give you a life of religious duty that's probably driven by shame and trying a lot harder and pride if you succeed. But it's never going to be the pathway for you to have joy in your relationship with me. Joy in your relationship with me. Being happy to be at the party with me. Celebrating with me. The groom is here. The party started. Uh, you can't fast now. And he told him that story because it's like, this: unless you get that, getting the rules right about fasting is not going to do you any good anyway. It doesn't matter if you're right about fasting. Your heart's wrong. So the church that Victor Hugo satirized and lampooned has a chance to be a place of welcome and embrace to anybody, no matter how broken they are. We have a chance for that. But only if somehow we come to feel in our bones, and I mean feel in our bones, not hold this opinion in our heads, feel in our bones that we're just as bad as because if we think church is a place where Jesus comes to feast with the least worthy people, then we'll be a church that has open arms to anybody. Well, let's pray. Father, I'm uh, attracted and repelled by this message uh, at the same time, but I know it's right, and I I ask that you would work in me and work in my friends here, that we might see ourselves truly, that we might see Jesus in the beauty of his grace, and that we might look at other people uh, with different eyes because of the way you've treated us. Uh, have mercy on us as a church. Let this be in our DNA. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.